Hello and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm Rania Kalik and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rania. So today we have a really great guest. We have Ajit Singh, who's a journalist and grad student who's written extensively about China. You can read his work at Monthly Review. He's written a bunch at The Gray Zone as well and other outlets. Ajit, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, I guess beginning first and foremost with, uh, we can start generally with the coronavirus pandemic, you know, wreaking havoc across the United States and the U.S. botched response to it. Uh, I think what everyone is starting to notice is that in parallel to this, you're seeing an effort by the U.S. government and the Trump administration to really escalate this Cold War with China that was already uh, taking place, but to a really dangerous degree. And, you know, from what I can tell, it seems they're trying to use um, coronavirus to basically, like, deflect blame from themselves and onto China um, so that they don't have to take responsibility for their terrible response and the fact that, like, the U.S. is screwed right now. Um, And on top of that, it seems like the weapons industry is trying to get in on this and, you know, use it to fear monger to make some extra money. Um, So I guess let's start with that, you know, just generally speaking, uh, what is happening in terms of the Cold War with China? And are we reaching a new tipping point? Yeah, I think, uh, I think basically since the coronavirus outbreak uh, began in, I guess, the end of 2019 and early 2020, uh, there's been like a really hostile orientation towards uh, China and China's response. Um, at the beginning stages, uh, China was sort of when China implemented like the lockdown measures, it was demonized as as being authoritarian or draconian. And now, uh, what you're referring to is 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 this new trend where now that the situation has come under control in China and has really gone out of control in the United States with the worst coronavirus outbreak in the world at the moment, um, the United States government and establishment and media seem to uh, have in concert shifted to, well, uh, from saying initially that China's response was was too strong and authoritarian in January uh, to now saying China didn't act fast enough, it, it engaged in a cover-up, um, and basically the 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 main narrative is that Americans should see China as being responsible for the incredible suffering that they're undergoing right now, as opposed to uh, being a failure of their capitalist system, as opposed to being a failure of the Trump administration, which uh, as late as February was calling the virus a democratic hoax. Um, and I think the the aim here is twofold. One, it sort of neutralizes or confuses people's rightful outrage for the way they have been treated uh, and the lack of support that's been provided to them by the wealthiest government in the world. Um, And additionally, it serves to ramp up the already existing new Cold War strategy. Um, We've seen uh, just, I believe, a few days ago in the New York Times, there was a report that military officials had submitted a request to Congress for a $20 billion increase uh, in funding uh, on top of their already exorbitant budget uh, to uh, to serve as a quote-unquote deterrent against China. And I think they're really trying to weaponize the fear around this issue to to hammer home their, their new Cold War strategy. Um, and uh, I think for, for ordinary people, uh, yeah, this is like, this, this isn't going to do anything to solve the problems that they're facing in America today. It's not going to get them uh, more accessible treatment. It's not going to get them more testing. It's not going to get doctors, PPE, that's that's something uh, more appropriate than garbage bags uh, by blaming China. It's just going to serve to legitimize the Trump administration's awful response. Let's talk about, like, I don't think people are really aware um, of what happened in China, how China dealt with it. Uh, and now you see this campaign of trying to say that, like, the World Health Organization has been infiltrated by China because the World Health Organization has praised China for its response. So can you talk about what did China do that to respond to this virus that was successful, obviously, versus what the U.S. has done? And what does that say about these two systems? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned here. Um, 
in uh, one, I think, in contrast to a lot of the presentation, especially that's ramped up now, that China somehow uh, was engaging in some sort of cover-up uh, or this like uh, criminal delay in responding. Um, they they went to the World Health Organization in on December 31st, 2019, when there are only a handful of cases of abnormal pneumonia. Uh, and so when a novel pathogen like the current coronavirus emerges in a country, it doesn't have a sign on it that says, I'm a new virus. It's going to mask itself by uh, sharing symptoms and overlapping with already known and existing diseases, uh, such as flus or other coronaviruses or and whatnot, uh, that also have similar symptoms. And so, but in, in the Chinese case, they were still, they went to the international health body with, they informed the United States CDC directly. Already you're seeing a response to this that indicates the, the level of seriousness that, that they accorded this issue. Um, and uh, in January uh, 23rd, uh, 2019, or 2020, they famously, uh, as we all know, implemented the lockdown measures in Wuhan, which is the uh, city in which the virus uh, outbreak began, and a number of other cities in the province of Hubei. And uh, I think from here is where we can really start to notice uh, a lot of the differences between the U.S. and Chinese response. Um, so one, you had a nationally coordinated uh, response uh, that was led by the central government in coordination with regional governments. And this contrasts with in the United States, you've sort of had a diffused piecemeal response with different state governments uh, taking different measures. Some of them, I'm not even sure if uh, quarantine is a mandatory uh, policy across the country at this point, uh, even though there are hundreds of thousands of cases in the United States. Um, you saw, for example, in Florida, very famous pictures of people still engaging in, in going to the beach or, or going to spring break festivities. And that's not entirely the people's fault. Their government also didn't implement regulations to bar this sort of behavior. Um, and I think, so one, this sort of collective containment response, which was coordinated uh, and aggressive is, is one takeaway. Uh, and a strict lockdown that was willing to sacrifice short-term economic gains, which is what China did uh, by implementing a rigid uh, lockdown for several months. Uh, whereas in the United States, we've seen already conflicting messages from the government and, and the corporate sector sort of undermining the efficacy or, or confidence in social distancing measure with rhetoric like, uh, what are they saying? The cure shouldn't be worse than the disease, referring to the economic impact it might have and suggesting that workers should go back. So that's, that's one area. Another thing is, as the World Health Organization uh, reported, uh, the first thing China said is that tre uh, treatment is free and testing is free. And of course, as we all know, this is not the case or has not been the case in the United States. Uh, initially, it seems like people don't know how to get a test unless you're a basketball player or a movie star. Um, and if you do get a test and you get treated, you're going to have to pay tens of thousands of dollars, uh, which itself is a barrier to even seeking treatment because... Uh, very few Americans can afford that, and a lot of them are forced to go on to GoFundMe in order to pay for treatment. Uh, so dealing with barriers uh, to access to healthcare uh, is the second issue. I think another interesting one that really gets into the difference between these political economic systems is that in the United States, uh, we've seen how doctors and frontline healthcare workers, and also other frontline workers that aren't in the healthcare industry, like uh, delivery workers, people working in Amazon warehouses or working in grocery stores uh, are not being given adequate equipment to do the work that they need to do uh, that's deemed essential to society uh, and are basically being told by the CDC to wear scarves or bandanas or uh, whatever they can to protect themselves. Uh, in China, um, as opposed to relying on the private sector to find of its own accord some interest in producing uh, the things that people need, uh, the central government uh, basically reoriented large sectors of production and firms in the private and public sector to produce uh, essential medical supplies. Um, they, they reoriented this not just for uh, firms that already engaged in this sort of production, but they even reoriented the activities of 
uh, automakers and, and clothing manufacturers, excuse me. Um, and this was able to uh, go from a situation where in early, I believe, February, there was concern about shortages in China as well, to within a month increasing the production of things like face masks uh, by a factor of 12. Um, and so I think here you can see that in the United States, we're often told that the only efficient way, the only acceptable way to deal with any problem is to rely on the private sector. Like that's the rhetoric. Uh, the public sector is often maligned as inefficient or uh, bureaucratic or corrupt and not an appropriate uh, or capable means to address uh, social needs. Um, and I think here you're sort of seeing that's a completely bankrupt idea in the United States, a country that for no lack of wealth is not able to provide basic medical supplies to even doctors and frontline healthcare workers as they're dealing with a global pandemic. Like it couldn't be more of an emergency situation. Whereas China, a much poorer country, it has a per capita income that's about one fifth or one sixth of the United States. Uh, and not just China, other countries have been able to far more successfully provide uh, things like medical supplies to people. And I think another area that's interesting that I touched on in my uh, article for the monthly review is that um, things like other goods other than medical supplies, like food, uh, essential goods that families need and, and other ordinary people. Uh, in, in the United States and other countries, we've seen like lots of uh, viral pictures of empty grocery stores or uh, people can't get toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> but um, this also doesn't have to be the case. Like in China and other countries, we've seen very strong measures against like price gouging and hoarding with like supermarkets being fined, uh, for example, in China, hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to keep their prices appropriate. Um, and so I think here we can also see just I think the general idea uh, to take away from these is that the, it's not it is possible to have a public sector which uh, disciplines the private sector. It's possible to have a public sector that has a dominant role in the economy and uh, in meeting political and, uh, emergencies or political situations and social needs and that it doesn't have to all be this uncoordinated, uncoordinated mess that people have no idea how to navigate, which has, I think, been the lot, experience of a lot of Americans and, and people also here in Canada and then throughout the West. So, Ajit, let me ask you, uh, you highlight this poll that uh, came out. I think we should get into some of the attitudes that people have within the United States. And uh, it reflected in this Washington Post uh, story that uh, I saw you commenting on, where basically we found that 77% have blamed China for the coronavirus, including more than two-thirds of Democrats and that 71% say American companies should remove manufacturing in China. Uh, it, uh, coincidentally, that was actually early on in the outbreak back in January. It was something that we heard Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross talk about as maybe a positive of China having the virus, that they might be able to convince companies to move their factories to the United States because they wouldn't want to risk getting these kinds of uh, dirty diseases in the future. 69% uh, support Trump's tougher trade policies with China and 54% saying that China should pay some kind of reparations. And as, as you state, this is representative of the U.S. being an unfathomably ra racist entity. So why don't we explore some of uh, that racism? Where it's, where it's coming from is pretty clear. It's coming from the policymaking. But what has been the effect at the grassroots level as these attitudes spread throughout the country? For listeners, there was a, a recent poll uh, conducted by a firm which was cited by Josh Rogan in a recent article in the Washington Post uh, on the attitudes of, uh, it was a survey of I think 2,000 members of the Republican and, and Democratic parties, and it found these attitudes that you outlined basically a much higher uh, much uh, like a great increase in ho hostile attitudes towards China. Uh, I think uh, this is a, this is in contrast. We can contrast these results rather with a poll that I believe came out last year on U.S.-China attitudes in in the United States, which found I think uh, about two thirds of Americans polled 
uh, we're supportive of basically constructive relations and cooperations with China. And I think this coronavirus uh, pandemic and a lot of the hawkish media coverage around it, uh, as we've seen with, for example, the Bernie campaign, is really capable of shaping people's attitudes towards this issue and make them uh, believe things that really don't jive with the reality that they're experiencing. Like instead of blaming, for example, the Trump administration, they're blaming a foreign government that's not really capable of managing their government's response to a health crisis. Um, I think on the ground, uh, I think basically where this attitude is emerging from is the fact that the United States government um, and corporate media have basically been pushing like a nonstop uh, flood of demonizing representations of China, but not just China, it's people also. Like uh, we have the infamous example of Trump using the Chinese virus term or Wuhan virus. You also have uh, Republican senators referring to Chinese culture as being to blame um, and demonizing and presenting caricatures and misinformation with respect to China's eating habits and the nature of wet markets and, and whatnot. Uh, and I think what you're seeing is uh, like a very dangerous trend emerging on the grassroots level, on the level of like people's ordinary lives. We've seen like a huge increase in hate crimes and attacks towards Asian Americans. Um, just this week, we've seen two attacks in New York, one being a woman being doused in acid outside of her home when she was putting her garbage out, and another woman who was uh, assaulted um, in New York and had to get stitches on her, on her forehead. Um, I think this is... This is, yeah, ratcheting up hostility towards China and Chinese people. And the groundwork has been laid for this much earlier than, than coronavirus. It's sort of just setting fire to groundwork that's already been laid. In 2018, we had uh, Mike Pompeo already making comments. Um, in an interview with BBC, he was referring to how uh, Chinese, China is trying to infiltrate the United States. There are Chinese people that are trying to infiltrate and act as spies on behalf of the Chinese government. Uh, the FBI director made similar comments with respect to China presenting a quote-unquote whole of society threat. Um, and basically there's been particularly uh, hostility targeted towards like Chinese researchers in the United States as basically being agents of the CCP. And so when you have something like the coronavirus emerge, which impacts all Americans, uh, and especially ordinary Americans, working Americans, poor Americans, uh, and makes them understandably very concerned about their security and safety and health and well-being, um, there's going to be uh, a, lot of, a lot of opportunity to direct those very understandable feelings towards uh, an enemy. And I think what we're seeing in the United States by the establishment is an attempt to direct this at China. And it's very worrying that it seems to be effective. And I think this is something that people need to really uh, take seriously. I think there's a dominant tendency amongst progressives to take the sort of attitude of, well, uh, we, should, we should challenge anti-Asian racism, but we don't really want to challenge hostility towards the Chinese state. And I don't really think that's a coherent position. I don't think those things can be separated. I think when people are flooded with uh, an avalanche of stories which depicts all of Chinese society, uh, all, of, all of its culture as being some sort of authoritarian, zombie-like uh, society which, which unquestioningly follows the directives of some tyrannical government um, in concert with stories that these citizens are infiltrating and, and spreading disinformation and sabotaging the United States, it's naturally going to lead to anti-Chinese and anti-Asian racism. And I think the only way to really confront that is by confronting the Cold War hostility directed between the, the uh, directed from the United States towards China. And just to quickly follow up, it, just because it's connected, and then um, I'll let Rania get back in. Uh, you, you tweeted uh, a really good rhetorical question. You were saying that 
To protect their extreme wealth from mild reform, the U.S. establishment demonized and undermined Bernie Sanders' campaign at every step, forcing people to risk death to vote in primaries. And uh, I mean, re this happened in March, and then recently we saw people being forced to go to the polls in Wisconsin. Do you think they tell the truth about quote-unquote enemy countries that challenge the interests of U.S. empire? And I think that's a really good rhetorical question. You were already sort of addressing it with your previous answer to my first question, but I think that in order to get people to unpack the racist ideas, the ignorant or uninformed ideas that they have about China, they might want to draw some comparisons between what they were told that was completely false about uh, the Sanders campaign or what they've been told that was completely false about the popularity of certain ideas in our country, socialist ideas, and see that there is actually a connection, that there, that there are shared, that there's an interplay happening between this, these politics. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, the ruling class or the U.S. establishment, uh, the attitude they take towards uh, domestic progressive change that we all can witness uh, in, in your case in the United States, but also similarly here in Canada, uh, they, this, there's this sort of, uh, people aren't always able to make the same connection to when it comes to countries outside of, uh, countries abroad. Or, and I think it's important to draw that connection because it's the same sort of, You know, I love to, I, I think everything you're saying is so important. And I think it's it's a good segue to discuss, um, you know, what is the hostility about China really all about? And at the end of the day, um, there is a kind of like great power competition happening here that was already happening before coronavirus as far as the U.S. sees it, right? They see China as their future enemy because China presents a serious challenge to U.S. economic domination globally. Um, China is this, like, has become this huge power. They've managed to bring all these people out of poverty. Their standard of living has risen. Um, after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, China had already started kind of taking a lead and presenting an alternative. So can you talk about that? Like, like, explain from how you see it, what is it that the U.S. is so terrified of when it comes to China? What is this conflict actually all about? Yeah, um, so basically, since the first Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union, the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy has been to establish unipolar global dominant, uh, dominance or basically unchallenged supremacy. Um, and we've seen this played out through countless wars of regime change and, and, and brutal destruction wrought uh, on numerous countries, but it's been unable to stop the rise of China. Uh, I think basically since the normalization of bilateral relations in the 70s, the United States uh, approach to China was containment via engagement. Um, uh, and I think there was this thought or this, uh, this significant sort of um, train of thought within the U.S. ruling class that uh, they assumed China's economic reforms would eventually lead to the abandonment of the Communist Party's leadership and the system of socialism with Chinese characteristics in favor of basically Western-oriented neoliberalism. Um, and I think in recent decades, uh, particularly during the Obama administration, we see a change uh, and I think a realization that China and its leadership has no intention of adopting this sort of orientation. Uh, and here we see sort of this shift uh, with, the, with the Asia pivot under Obama, um, which basically seeks to, has sought to shift uh, the majority of U.S. naval assets to the Asia Pacific uh, by, I guess, now 2020. Um, and as uh, Clinton argued uh, when she was Secretary of State, uh, the United States needed to reorient the focus of its foreign policy uh, in order to, quote, continue American leadership well into the 21st century. Uh, and this strategy has escalated under Trump with what you mentioned, this sort of uh, rhetoric 
that that the Trump administration has pursued of great power competition overtaking terrorism or the rhetoric of terrorism as the primary concern of U.S. foreign policy and the quote-unquote threat posed by the ascendance of China. Um, and Pompeo uh, and NATO ministers at the most recent NATO ministerial meeting uh, explicitly stated that um, NATO must address the quote, current and potential long-term threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party uh, and explicitly compared that threat to the first Cold War. Um, and so what's really at the root of this, I think, is there are two, two main things uh, to, to take into consideration, I think, to, to understand this. Uh, it's not like, um, it's more than a narrow, some sort of narrow competition between quote-unquote superpowers. I think what China represents, one, uh, is that it is legitimizing and demonstrating probably more than any other country because of the extent to which it's liberated itself from sort of the siege style tactics that the United States prefers to impose on uh, quote unquote enemy countries. Uh, it's sort of demonstrating the viability of an alternative to neoliberal capitalism, uh, which is basically the consensus of the US ruling class for the past 40 years. Um, and whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call China system socialism, state capitalism, or post-capitalism, regardless, it's demonstrating that a state-led economic development path uh, is has outperformed U.S. capitalism. And this sort of undermines uh, the sort of authority uh, that the United States relies on domestically and internationally to push forward with its agendas. Um, and I think beyond this, uh, China's at the heart of a trend uh, or a multipolarization uh, in which we're seeing non-Western countries uh, emerging to shape uh, or contest uh, the sort of U.S. and Western-led international order. Um, and I think this is really why China is the primary target of U.S. imperialism because of its uh, strategic importance in this trend. Basically, any country that's pursuing a development path independent of U.S. imperialism, its chief international partner uh, is China. Uh, China has the capacity uh, more than any other country to provide alternative sources of economic uh, engagement, investment, financing, diplomatic support uh, towards countries like Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia under Morales, uh, Brazil when it was governed by the Workers' Party, um, and countries like Iran, uh, I think, so really it's sort of the fulcrum of this uh, uh, anti-hegemonic trend. And I think it's very important, although a lot of progressives and sort of mainstream Western progressive figures are reluctant to sort of speak out on this, it's not a neutral question. There's a very strong distinction between this form of engagement uh, constructive engagement and sanctions, bombs, blockades, which wreak havoc on countries throughout the global south. This is a progressive alternative, uh, regardless of your personal opinion of the countries involved. Uh, and I think it provides a lot of opportunities to particularly developing countries and a, a greater policy space or breathing room because uh, the fundamental sort of characteristic of Chinese foreign policy is that it doesn't discriminate based on the ideological program of a partner. And so we see China will come to the aid of neoliberal Italy as well as it will to support socialist Venezuela or communist Cuba. And this sort of space is in complete contrast to the U.S. and Western orientation, which has always conditioned engagement on whether a partner or, or uh, the country with which it's engaging will pursue policies favorable to the U.S. and West, and this undermines any sort of autonomous or sovereign development projects that actually meet people's needs in these countries. And so this isn't to say that China somehow is a magic bullet which solves problems for developing countries, but it definitely provides a space and breathing room which is essential for these countries that wish to pursue or in which the domestic political situation uh, uh, has the capacity to pursue an alternative project. Uh, um, there's there's some there's a little game I want to play, but Kevin, do you have anything else you'd like to ask before I go to my little game? <laughs> well, before you uh, get in, I, I 
I know where you're going, and I'm glad that you're going to do this. Uh, what about the coverage of Wuhan and parts of China now as we see parts of the country coming out of lockdown? I, I, I did want to get your thoughts on how the media is probably going to and, and ha I mean, they've been doing it all along, as you've been describing there. A lot of these journalists are fronting for the interests of U.S. intelligence agencies and their prejudices are learned prejudices based upon the default U.S. policy. And that's going to appear as we see that parts of China and in fact soon the entire country of China is no longer dealing with the massive outbreak that they have been uh, racked with for the last two to three months. And they're going to be I'm not going to say back to normal, but they're going to be open for business and they're going to be doing, uh, going about their regular daily lives. And what we're going to see constantly in the press are these stories that suggest that they're concealing, that there are still cases in China, that they're downplaying, that there are people still d dying, uh, that, that somehow China is doing this inappropriately, when in fact that's actually true for the U.S. And I suppose I just kind of want you to further explore this whole thing of a lot of the criticisms of China. It, it seems like every single country has done this in their response to the coronavirus to some extent. I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find countries that either were unsure of how to deal with the virus. So they came off as unprepared or they lied or they spread falsehoods about the virus because they wanted to keep their economies open for as long as possible because they knew the devastation that would come from shutting down. Um, and it just seems like because it's China, we've given them the standard that no other country is expected to uphold. In this uh, period where Wuhan and, and the country is sort of emerging from the quarantine and lockdown measures, I think uh, I was just looking over headlines this morning. I think one of the things we'll we'll see is this sort of uh, speculation or fear mongering about is this too soon? Is this going to lead to a relapse? And uh, oh no, China is going to cause a second wave of of infections. I think it's important to understand that there are still a lot of restrictions in place in terms of the the easing or easing of these sort of restrictive measures. There's still lots of limitations on uh, hours of the day in which businesses are open, uh, hours of the day in which people are permitted to like go out and, and engage in stuff uh, or in public activity. Uh, there's still restrictions on, on travel. Um, but yeah, there is definitely an easing. So I think this sort of fear mongering and speculation about, uh, oh, this is going to cause a relapse is, is, is a narrative that I expect to emerge and already has. I saw a story in Al Jazeera. Uh, and I think um, I think in regards to uh, China's um, response, one of the one of the things that we've sort of seen, which I actually tackled in a recent article for the Gray Zone, is this sort of idea that China uh, is engaging in this cover up uh, about the death total, and that the death total is actually tens of thousands higher, um, which contrasts completely, you know, with the reality that the lockdown is being lifted. If there was this huge 50,000 death total in China, there'd be no way that these measures would be eased. It just, there's no coherent way of understanding Chinese behavior when you apply sort of the narratives that are, that are pushed as credible in the US press. And I don't think, I think, so, okay, I think with respect to this sort of a lot of the things you mentioned, I think, sort of can be understood uh, or illustrated through this sort of death toll story. So basically, the Daily Beast reported a government cable, I think, a few weeks ago, uh, a leaked government cable uh, from U.S. officials, which basically said the White House is directing uh, members of the government to blame China uh, and for engaging in a cover-up. And basically, right away, you see uh, U.S. corporate media uh, start engaging in this sort of rhetoric that uh, China's uh, disinformation is is misleading people and it's undermining the U.S. response. And then right after that, you see a story of um, uh, China's death totals that are actually 40 to 50,000 
and in contrast to the official figures of two to 3,000. Uh, and where does this originate? The first report, of course, unsurprisingly, comes from Radio Free Asia, which is the US government's uh, state-owned uh, broadcasting network, which the New York Times in the 1970s, when it was uh, established, referred to as a CIA propaganda network. Um, and uh, <laughs> its sourcing is, is, it's so like, it's so obscene, like the, the low degree of evidence there is, it's almost like in proportion to the degree of like absurd claim that's made about China, the degree of evidence is like uh, inversely proportional. <laughs> like what they cite for this like extremely damning scandalous claim, which would cause like international outrage, uh, the idea that China's death totals are like what, 20, 25 times higher than what's stated. Uh, is, quote, some social media posts where users engaged in, quote, basic math, uh, which aren't even cited. And if you actually dig into some of the reporting, a Vice story which picked it up sort of provides an idea of where these claims come from. It cites basically, a, not basically, it cites the claims of a Falun Gong member, which is a cult that believes Trump was sent from heaven to destroy the Communist Party of China and thinks that interracial relationships sever our connection from God and calls environmentalism and feminism satanic plots. Uh, so very dubious sourcing. And right after this, it's picked up by a bunch of uh, mainstream networks like the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Bloomberg, Vice, etc. And then you see a lot of uh, stories emerge where the US intelligence agency is now uh, saying that it has evidence that China's uh, death toll is, is far higher. And the CIA is, is making statements that uh, we don't believe China's figures. And yeah, I think in this period, I think what these stories serve to do, one, I would argue that this is not a very credible uh, story in terms of like, if we were to establish the sort of scrutiny we do to most news stories in the world, we would laugh this off. Uh, but because of its, its China, it's sort of deemed... A, the sort of assumption with China is that it's true unless proven guilty, as opposed to guilty un, until, or the, the, sorry, the thing with China is that it's guilty until proven innocent, as opposed to innocent and proven guilty, which is generally the standard. Um, and the I think what these 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 stories serve to do, right, fear about China, and then two, they sort of normalize that Trump when Trump makes statements like 100,000 people dying would be a good job. Well, if 50,000 people died in China, and that's probably also a lie, which is the narrative that's put forward, then this sort of like egregious uh, failure by the Trump administration is seen as, okay, well, this is justified. And I think Americans need to really, uh, really need to be able to confront this in order to deal with like the horrible treatment they're getting from their own government. And, and a failure to do so will really empower the most reactionary forces in the United States. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, and it is interesting, like, how the entire media just steps right into line after a National Security Council directive to the U.S. government for blaming China. But sadly, it is working. And, I mean, what's really dangerous, too, is there's no... You mentioned earlier there's not really any attempt by the by progressives to like engage on this, they kind of just like let it happen or some of them actually join in. Um, and that's really upsetting to watch because, and I think that a lot of that has to do with just a lack of any understanding about anything when it comes to China. Unlike um, other adversaries, I guess you could say, there's just not that much expertise on China for like progressives to turn to. like there's just not as much of an industry of, of China expertise, I guess. Um, and I also think because of like, uh, China's so far away, it's, and it's just like a country nobody knows anything about. It's, it's a lot easier than other, than it is. Like, it's a lot easier for, for us propaganda to sort of like, to like to work on people. It's a lot easier because China's just this unknown, like exotic land in most people's minds. Um, I think, I think in a worse way than even Russia is. Yeah, I think one factor, like I think there's, we could have a whole podcast or multiple podcasts or discussions about like the orientation of even progressives towards China. But I think one thing that distinguishes China from most sort of embattled countries with which 
the left will be willing to challenge the mainstream representation is that uh, China sort of displaces the sort of, I think for the mainstream left, there's this tendency where, you know, the, the noble Western left comes to the rescue of poor embattled country. And if not for the solidarity of great saviors in, in, in the Western left and their solidarity statements, uh, where would we be? And China is a country that's absolutely not like that because China isn't a country that fortunately or uh, unfortunately, whereas other countries are forced to sort of beg for solidarity from the Western left, China is a country that's able to assert itself and it displaces sort of the Western left narrative of being at the center of, um, of sort of international issues. Uh, because China's not waiting around for the United States left to issue some sort of solidarity statement to lift the Cuban blockade. China breaks through the blockade by engaging with Cuba. And I think I think the Western left needs to be, I think, a bit more critical of like its own role in the world. Uh, and and I think critical of this sort of fear of a post-Western world, like for all the sort of... Um, critical attitude towards Western foreign policy, I think a lot of leftists have, I think there's still this sort of fear of a world in which the West is not at the center, in which they are not at the center uh, as being something to be afraid of, as something that threatens them. Uh, yeah, so it would be nice to see Western leftists maybe a bit more critical of their orientation. Well, we also... Uh, I think that's a... Oh, sorry. What do I just, it's something that you've talked about, Rania, before, and I think we need to connect it back uh, with what Aja is saying here, because uh, a lot of times progressives, particularly in the United States, I don't really know the dynamic in Canada, but, but despite the U.S. having uh, so many bases through anywhere from 800 to 900 countries, uh, military bases having uh, embassies throughout the world, having a, a vast network of influence and empire, uh, there's really limited focus on U.S. foreign policy when it comes to progressive organizations. So you know, if, you, if we're talking about China and not having people within progressive organizations that do policy in a responsible way, unfortunately, that actually extends out to many of these other countries that are receiving assistance from China. And then it even extends further with lacking an understanding of regions of the world because as people who just went through a an, another presidential primary season, uh, we know that anytime foreign policy was talked about in debates, it was like, okay, we squeezed in 20 minutes at the end of two or three hours of debating just to have people uh, go through the uh, ritual of calling out America's designated enemies. Yeah, and uh, I think that, you know, you made a really good point, Ajit, about like the sort of psychology of some of this, where when it comes to the Western left, it, it, it there really is like almost like they have a fear of China as well. Because like you said, China is not some weak, you know, developing country. It's a very strong country. It doesn't need like it doesn't need the help of the Western left in any way whatsoever. It's not rhetorically, not anything. They, they're perfectly capable of handling themselves, which is why they present such a threat to the U.S. Um, so I think that's interesting because I think, yeah, like a lot of it is this fear of, it, it does it does illuminate or reveal that a big chunk of what would call themselves the left or Western left are actually very much interested in maintaining American hegemony over the world, whether they want to believe that or not. Um, anyway, I... If I if I, I could mean, just make do you like any do you want to sorry go ahead yeah no yeah. I, there's just one point that I wanted to make uh, uh, sorry to interrupt is um, yeah I think like I think for ordinary American people and working people I think they I think if we look at history the rise of so-called uh, enemies or alternative systems uh, of governments uh, governance. Uh, we can sort of see a historical precedent in the first Cold War. Like throughout the first Cold War, regardless of let's bracket one's opinion of the Soviet Union or Socialist Bloc or whatever, 
these countries were demonized as the most grave threat to U.S. freedom and liberty, etc. But actually, this sort of uh, expansion of alternative systems of government with a bunch of socialist countries, you also have a variety of, uh, or, or a great um, emergence of, of post-colonial states with a variety of political and economic orientations. This coincides with what's called the golden age of capitalism, the emergence of the social welfare state. Uh, we see advances in democratization and civil liberties, the civil rights movement and anti-racist movements. And these, while of course led by the domestic social and labor movements themselves to win, were definitely benefited from, they definitely benefited from this international balance of forces, uh, which legitimized alternatives to capitalism, which legitimized self-rule of indigenous peoples and of colonized peoples and legitimized anti-racism. And so today, I think for ordinary Americans, we absolutely shouldn't see the rise of alternative powers as a threat. It's an opportunity because it legitimizes today alternatives to neoliberalism. Uh, like e if, even if we just take China itself, in the United States, like the wealthiest country in the world, and Canada also, a very wealthy country, like public transportation is horrible. Like, why is this the case? There's no reason for it. And the existence of China and other East Asian countries where you have robust high-speed transit is something that we can demand here because it exists. It's not for it being an impossibility that we don't have it. It's a matter of the political will under our system. Or if it's something like uh, planning to redirect your production towards like renewable energy technologies, which China has emerged as sort of the leader in, in terms of investment and production, of things like solar, wind, and other renewable energies, uh, we're often told here that this is an impossibility. We can't, we can't uh, move too quickly, or we have to take into account the interests of the auto industry, or, or what have you. There are all these reasons that are put forward. But the existence of an alternative is sort should be seen as a boon for domestic struggles, uh, something that can sort of put wind in the sails of these movements. It doesn't mean that you have to just apply whatever's in another country. Just the existence of alternatives legitimizes the things that we need uh, for ourselves. Uh, uh, and I think, yeah, it should be seen as an opportunity and not a threat. That's a fantastic point. Um, on that note, I just wanted to play a little game where um, I just like wanted to like be the contrarian and say like some of the most common things you'll hear like complaining about China, mostly even from progressives. And I wanted to see how you would respond, right? So the first thing we always hear is like, how can China offer an alternative model when it's such an authoritarian state? Don't you care about civil liberties? Don't do you want China to, to impose its system on everybody else and then where none of us are gonna have freedom of speech? Like, how do you respond to that? Yeah, so there's the, the common narrative which you're outlining is that China, a country of 1.4 billion people, uh, is sort of ruled by this iron fist in which this huge force of human population is somehow unable to express itself and is just sort of putting up with this brutal leadership of this tyrannical dictatorship. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that in 1949, after a century in which China was dominated and carved up uh, uh, by Western powers and sort of forced to accept the drug trade of the British monarchy, uh, the opium trade, um, its living life expectancy was 36 years old. Um, within 30 years, that was nearly doubled. Uh, and in the past 30 years, so the first 30 years, it nearly doubled. And in the from 1978 to 2015, uh, there's all this uh, talk about China's like this hyper-capitalist dystopia. It's more neoliberal than the most neoliberal countries. Um, well, in fact, China operates in a distinctly different manner. Uh, there's a study at the U.S. Uh, National Bureau of Economic Research um, by Thomas Piketty uh, and a number of other Western economists, which basically looked at uh, changes in inequality and um, increases in income with different brackets of the population across a number of countries. And in China, for the bottom 50% of the population, uh, real income 
in this period in which neoliberalism has advanced around the world, real income in China for this bottom 50% increased 401%. Uh, for comparison, in the United States, it, I believe, decreased by a couple percent. So I think the way to understand China, China's, the legitimacy of China's government, I think, to me, when you look at history, it makes more sense that 1.4 billion people see the legitimacy in their government, not because they're able to be ruled and, and, and contained and, and any sort of dissidents flushed out by some sort of uh, science fiction type government. Um, but you see actually the legitimacy is gained by like incomparable improvements in living standards and meeting these people's needs. Is China a perfect government? No, but it's a coherent system of governance that has legitimacy amongst its peoples because of the history, like brutal history that they faced. Um, and I think this is a much more reasonable understanding that doesn't require uh, caricatures to make sense of. And I have two more. Um, the other one is always that you hear, and you'll hear this more from like people in the progressive community and like the left is they'll be like, China's even more capitalist than America. They're the biggest capitalist government in the world. Like, look at their slave labor conditions. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so again, I guess this sort of overlaps with the past one is that yeah. to understand a place, to understand where a place is today, like we understand it from where it, we should try to understand it based on where it came from. Uh, and the reality is that if you like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what words they would use for China in 1949, or what use they would use what words they would use for China several decades ago. Uh, according to every international development agency, living standards for the population have increased markedly, especially compared to if you want to look at a hyper capitalist uh, country in the in the developing world. There's there's actually a lot of like very good comparisons to be made in order to understand how China can be distinguished. A good example is India, where in the neoliberal period, you've seen a completely different um, sort of uh, manifestation of, 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 of social and political outcomes and economic outcomes for ordinary people in that country, and a great impoverishment of ordinary people. You have this sort of uh, impact of neoliberalism uh, has, has led to great suffering. In China, you see widespread increasing uh, increases in living standards. You also see, um, I think this doesn't just uh, spontaneously emerge. Uh, in China, you basically have the, absolutely there's a private sector, absolutely there's inequality. Um, but in China, you have the coexistence of different forms of property and ownership under the strict control of a communist party and a state and public sector. Uh, this is what allows China, for example, during the coronavirus pandemic, to basically issue a directive to private firms to produce uh, something that Western neoliberal countries. Uh, this is what allows China to reorient uh, its production and, and economic uh, orientation based on Every five years, they still issue economic and developmental plans at every Congress of the Communist Party, and every five years, they substantially follow them. Uh, and it's because of the very strong state sector uh, and public sector that China is able to uh, to move up uh, and and sort of pursue a, a a strategy for national development, long-term plans that neoliberal countries in the global south are incapable of doing. And the last one is, uh, I think, an important one. And you sort of spoke to it a little bit earlier, but you'll often hear this said is that, you know, China isn't helping other developing countries. They're actually putting countries in Africa and Asia in debt and violating their sovereignty um, through their manipulative financial uh, strategy. Um, so how do you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, so that's a complete myth. I'm actually, I'm working on a paper, which I'm hoping to get published, uh, in the coming months, um, on this. Uh, yeah, so, 
so there's this myth that's been propagated by the United States uh, government that China engages in debt trap diplomacy, which is basically the use of financing uh, to to ensnare recipients uh, and then manipulate them to follow Beijing's interests. Uh, there's really no evidence for this. There's a lot of great scholarship by by U.S. Uh, mainstream economists uh, what, who come to mind immediately are Deborah Brodigam, uh, John Hopkins, who runs the China Africa Research Institute, and Kevin Gallagher at Boston University, which I believe he runs the Global Development Policy Center. So if, if your listeners are interested in, in reading in much more depth uh, this issue, China's lending practices are often at rates favorable to uh, Western international financial institutions and Western countries, and they're distinguished by a very important uh, characteristic, uh, that being conditionality. Like his historically, Western lenders and today condition the loans and financing on what we now infamously refer to as structural adjustment or the implementation of basically privatization, deregulation, uh, et cetera, austerity. And that's sort of the, the conditions with which the West will give out financing. Um, China's financing is unconditional in the sense that it's not conditioned on develop, uh, a recipient country implementing certain economic reforms. So it'll engage or lend to Venezuela and it'll engage and lend to a neoliberal country also. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, so I think it, it's, it's actually quite in contrast to traditional lenders uh, in that sense. Um, there's a lot more that could be gone into it, but uh, I would recommend uh, if people want to learn more to check out those very detailed, thorough uh, researchers that I uh, mentioned uh, who've been tackling this issue for a long time. Kevin, do you have any contrarian arguments you want to throw at Ajit since he's like on a freaking roll? Yeah, uh, I just would like to say that I am very relieved that we haven't been Zoom bombed by any Chinese security agents since all, all, all of the people throughout the world are living in fear uh, and we're actually not using the app, but everyone is living in fear that this video conferencing uh, tool is actually exposing them to Chinese security intrusion um, just because the company has a, a encryption keys in China or has some ties to the Chinese government, which uh, is amazing to me. I, I, I'm sure you could unravel why, why all of this panic is uh, completely um, unfair or uh, just misplaced when all of the technology tools that we use have some connections to state governments and are being manipulated by those state governments? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know enough. Like, I've seen some headlines about Zoom, but I've never really investigated that particular. But yeah, this is definitely like a, a common uh, a trope that like China's uh, has like a backdoor into all of our technology or something like that. Um, yeah, I think as we all know, and as your listeners of your podcast will know, it's the United States, which is actually documented on uh, extensively for engaging in surveillance on its own allies and quote unquote enemy countries around the world. Um, I think like I think there's this weird sort of idea that China of like China encroaching on on U.S. or Western free speech. Uh, there's this big hubbub around the NBA controversy at the beginning of the year. I don't know if you, you both are familiar with that, where an NBA executive basically expressed uh, support for the anti-government protests in Hong Kong, and then uh, China complained, and there was this big drama between the NBA and, and, and China. I think like China absolutely will will voice its, its displeasure uh, when... Uh, like large-scale economic actors like corporations or um, countries, basically. The main issue that they seem to get, uh, get uh, displeasure of is the idea that Hong Kong or, or Taiwan are separate countries as opposed to regions of China. And uh, they'll voice their displeasure. 
But I think there's a distinction between like free speech and engaging with China. So like you're free to say whatever you want about China. You can say whatever. China sucks. China's terrible. Whatever. There's who's coming to discipline you? I like where is this idea coming from? <laughs> but do you have a right to profit off of China? To do、uh, make mega profits、uh, with your corporation by profiting off of Chinese consumers with your product? Is that Free speech, like you, you can still say whatever you want, but does China have does China have an obligation to engage economically with anyone, regardless of their views?、Uh, I don't know if that's free speech. That seems like a bit bizarre.、Um, but yeah, I think it's just like this this hysteria that like people in the West think that they're being eavesdropped on, which I've never heard of a situation of. Some person in the West being disciplined by the Chinese government for their political views, but、uh, you can let me know if I'm wrong. <laughs> It seems to be a lot of projection too, because like if we want to talk about disciplining free speech, I mean, look at the whole kneeling in the before football games. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like shutting up player. No, it's insane. Like it's like, are you serious? Or like the fact that literally, I mean, I guess you can't really fault people. For assuming that anything connected with another state government is spying on us, because literally every single social media app works with the Pentagon in America.、Um, yeah, for censorship. So, yeah, it's exactly, and we're censors literally at the behest of like government-funded think tanks. So I, I mean, a lot of it might also just be projection, because America is authoritarian in so many ways that we just let pass,、um, in so many ways, and it's, so it's like. You know, fear of any other government behaving like ours, or just projecting <laughs> that onto other governments while we whitewash our own, makes sense in a lot of ways.、Uh, it's also funny too because with the Zoom thing, it just reminds me of the reaction to TikTok. It's like a jealousy because、yeah. now everyone's using Zoom and everyone's using TikTok, and oh no, those have connections to China. You know, only Twitter and Facebook are supposed to be doing well. <laughs> you know, yeah, and like, like I think I remember seeing like. People that are deemed left or progressive, when Elon Musk like said he was going to buy ventilators, which turned out to like not be useful at all. Like、mm-hmm. it turned out that he bought them from China, and I saw commentators,、uh, respectable commentators, going forward and calling Elon Musk an agent of the CCP. It's like、yeah. what? It's like there's no evidence for these claims. It's just these these beliefs already exist, and then anything that happens can be plugged into whatever the narrative is. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think like if we want to talk about the the sort of sanctioning of free speech abroad, how else are you supposed to understand regime change other than censoring any sort of alternative to the Washington consensus? They will literally overthrow a government, bomb, sanction, and whatever if you express political ideas that Washington doesn't approve of. Like, is this not censorship? Uh, yes. It, yeah, it just seems totally out of whack. And I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think psychologically, like going back again to this sort of like this projection kind of mixed with fear is, if China is this rising power,、um, and like the future, you know, is one where China will be possibly more economically dominant than America, then a lot of people in their minds might assume that China will do all the things to America that America has done to other countries, and it's. Period of global domination,、um, yeah. which I think is like a common thing of like this fear of your adversary behaving like you do towards you.、Mm-hmm. Um, so that could possibly also be in the back. I mean, whatever. I guess we could sit here all day and try to psychoanalyze these odd <laughs> behaviors and fears of people, but it makes sense at the end of the day. But I also don't think it will be that simple. Like I don't think. Tomorrow it's going to be China on top and U.S. on the bottom, but I do think there is a very real understanding, is accelerated by the ineptitude displayed by our government during coronavirus, that the U.S. is a really hollowed-out, weak country internally, way more than any of us understood. Qu- quick before we wrap here,、uh, how many regime change operations does China have going right now? <laughs> I don't know, but after the 2020 election, I'm sure there will be a, some sort of、uh, narrative that emerges that China granted whoever won the the victory. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's like it doesn't really matter. Both of them have the same view on China. <laughs> <Yeah> . But I guess we'll see. Anyways, I think is there anything else, Kevin? Or no, no. It's,、like、no, it's been great to talk. This is an, an enlightening conversation. So thank you.
Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for having me. And hopefully we can have you on in the future to continue to dissect all this because I imagine it'll only get more extreme in the coming months and years. But thank you so much, Ajit. And where can people follow your follow you to, to read your work? Uh, yeah, the easiest way is probably just on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Ajit, A-J-I-T-X. Sing, Once again, S-I-N-G-H. thank you for all of your support. Uh, and yeah, I post we could not do this there. show without the well, 210 so plus show. patrons really who it. give thank to you. us on a monthly basis. If you happen to stumble upon this show and hear the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast for the first time, let me take a moment to encourage you to become a patron today. Uh, you can go to patreon.com backslash unauthorized disclosure. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash unauthorized disclosure. You can give at any level. And uh, just by becoming a patron, you'll open up access to exclusive content. We have a special episode, a reward episode that's in the works. It should be out in May. It's going to be special for patrons only. It's going to be on the state of the media between Rania, myself, and some special guests. So you'll want to be a patron for that show. The only way you'll be able to hear this show is by being a patron. So if you'd like to become a patron of our show, go to patreon.com backslash on all the rise disclosure. Thank you.